0: the mystical allure of converting to Buddhism, and speculating about quantum mechanics. Ask Me Anything for Episode EF3. I'm Scott Ely. Welcome to Episode EF18 of the Evolve Faster Podcast. Quick spoiler notice, this is a Ask Me Anything episode, looking back at questions about Episode EF3, which was Season 1, Episode 1 of the Evolve Faster Podcast, titled, all aboard the experience machine, destination unknown. Let me briefly read a paragraph from the website about this episode so you're reminded of the topics at hand. Is it even possible to make the right decision, especially when your hand is being forced? In this episode, we'll find out what does Buddhism have to say about this mysterious happiness that Western society seems obsessed with finding. Jean-Paul Sartre, one of the most famous existential philosophers, Felt we have a practical debt we owe to the world to be our highest selves. But what is that debt? Will you jump on board the train that might leave at any moment? Is there an autopilot, golden ticket to all of our life's problems? Or are all the shortcuts just a one-way ticket towards mental suicide, as Robert Nozick and other famous philosophers described it? Now last week I had a behind-the-podcast episode, which was also a and a but it was... Those questions were more specifically about the genesis of creating that episode, where we came up with the ideas, um, and a little more of the personal story behind how that episode was created. So this set of questions today, which were submitted on evolvefaster.com forward slash discuss, you can go there and pick the episode you have questions about and submit them. So the rest of the questions here are going to be more specifically about the content of the episode and the plot and things like that. What we're going to try to tackle today are the following questions. Why do people turn to Buddhism and should I? Why does it seem like quantum mechanics gets pulled into every discussion of a mystical scientific challenge these days? What is panpsychism? And are scientists really talking about it again? Is Jonathan's relationship with his father a metaphor? Uh, what is Vuja de? How do you know the Sartre quote is wrong and does it matter that it's not? What happened to John at the end? And what if I'm stuck in someone else's experience machine being controlled? Should I take the red pill? And is the Matrix really unoriginal? So why do people turn to Buddhism? Should I? A couple quotes from the episode. There Jonathan was, a person who couldn't spend more than 10 seconds without thinking, while at the same time, the pigeons seemed to be more zen than he could ever hope to be. And here's another one. Like almost any young Westerner, pondering about life brought Jonathan to reading about Buddhism. In it, he found what he called half-answers. Answers that cleared up one thing, but then just brought more questions. So for those of us who grew up, in, grew up and live in Western society, I feel Buddhism comes as an alternative life view. Since it's an unusual worldview relative to what you know growing up in Western society, the freshness of it is alluring. So don't you think it's possible that some people simply get fed up with the dominating Western views of life and they simply turn to the alternative? But does that make turning to an alternative bad or maybe wrong? I mean, I don't see why it should be. I've met a couple people from various Eastern Asian countries who had an opposite standpoint. Depending on the country, Christianity was the more appealing view. I found a study that estimates that by 2050, the number of official Buddhists in Europe and North America will increase, while in Asia, it will decrease. And I believe that the converse of that is also true. Christianity is declining in a lot of the Western world, yet I think it's on the rise in China and other places. There's also something called secular Buddhism, which I'm sure is exactly as it sounds. It's interesting to notice that non-religious people in the U.S. seem to tap into Buddhism as well because it's seen more as a philosophy than a religion. Also, since the number of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, the number of nuns, which is people that associate with no religion, is definitely a figure that's on the rise in the United States. But a lot of those people may look for something to guide them, and Buddhism does seem to be a choice that people are investigating some prominent figures in this arena like sam harris believe that if the religious aspect was taken out of buddhism it would be much better and more useful this does connect to buddhist teaching that says not to believe anything until experiencing it for yourself even the buddha himself so although turning to another religion or point of view might just be some cult reverse cultural bias i don't see anything wrong with experiencing something new whoever said you had to take on the complete package anyway. I mean, I was definitely drawn to Buddhism at one point when I left organized religion as a teenager, and I was definitely simply drawn to the meditative philosophical worldview aspect of it. I didn't even look into any of the, you know, the historical dogmas, and there are some that exist in Buddhism. So, but what I, what I liked about it was the meditation and the overall less dogmatic approach I certainly wasn't interested in just another story I was expected to believe. But stripped down, Buddhism is definitely a much more philosophical approach to having a spiritual introspective side, in my opinion. For example, one upside of the mindfulness movement is that it's produced a lot of useful research. There's now a lot of proof that meditation can reduce stress and bring peace to one's mind. And I think we can all agree that everybody could use less stress. But because you meditate, it doesn't magically turn you into a Buddhist. Or just because you meditate, you don't automatically have to join some organized group. You can pick whatever you want, as long as it's your choice and not a choice put on you by some external force in your life, like society, the culture, you're in, your family. But at least I got to write a Buddhism joke in the episode that I'd always laughed at in my own head. There's the quote that says, It's the old saying that if a tree falls and there's nobody there to hear it, it doesn't make a sound. Jonathan always answered that one by saying, yes, it did, and it was the same as the sound of one hand clapping. No? Not funny? Come on. All right, well, you try to make Buddhism funny then. Okay, next question. Why does it seem like quantum mechanics gets pulled into every discussion of a mystical, scientific challenge these days? So in the episode, we joke how quantum mechanics and quantum physics is the go-to for sounding smart on the internet. But why is that? So it, it, it's because it's fascinating to many of us. At least my it's my opinion that it's a fascinating subject. So just like trying to decode our human consciousness, I imagine quantum mechanics as an attempt to decode the consciousness of space and the physical reality around us. So it's just kind of a fascinating um, idea to dig into. Coupled with our consciousness, I think these are two of the biggest questions and mysteries of our time still. There are even suggestions of a, p- a potential link between our mind and quantum physics. So one of them is called quantum mind, which I can link to in the show notes if you want to check it out. I don't know how much scientific validity there is behind it, but although they're just a hypothesis that that's unlikely scientists will prove in the near future, it does propose interesting connections between consciousness and science. So at the moment, quantum mechanics might turn out to be the best tool we have to really dissect big unknowns such as consciousness, considering we really don't have a strong direction or a tool set to understand it yet. But imagine one day if our uniqueness does get understood and put down in numbers and graphs. How would it make you feel if everything that makes you human could be you know, boiled down to simple ones and zeros? According to Max Tegmark, if you read his book, it's kind of already the case. We're all just algorithms. Quantum mechanics, ultimately, is just trying to explain what's going on at what we think are the smallest levels of everything. And some very weird, bizarre stuff is happening at these levels for sure, like quantum entanglement, where, you know, you have two particles that are completely different locations. And if quantumly entangled, they move in concert with one another. the Chinese I believe have figured out now how to make it work at longer and longer distances and it's possible this could lead to some very sci-fi things like you know some really advanced quantum computers I really do start to think this shit's starting to get kind of weird I mean what's next actual time machines but actually there are scientists who think via special relativity it is feasible that we at some point will be able to time travel into the future and I read that via the Large Hadron Collider, we've really already done this, physicists have already done this, with particles on a subatomic level, sending them into the future. So, like I said, shit's getting weird. Okay, what is panpsychism, and are scientists really talking about it again? So, panpsychism is an idea that our mind, or soul, is the primal force of everything. In other words, universal. Pan means everything, and psyche means soul so early versions of this concept might trace back to pre-socratic greeks like thales about whom aristotle once said some say a soul is mingled in the whole universe which is perhaps why thales thought that everything is full of gods so it developed lost favor and actually has been sort of brought back into favor once again with philosophers who have become worried about the consciousness problem yet again somewhere in the 90s i think this started to be talked about again. So I believe the reason why it came back is that the problem of consciousness can be described through non-physical means. Enter quantum mechanics again, this awesome side of physics. Although I joke about it a lot, I'm fascinated by quantum mechanics. So at least the small part that I can understand about it. So in the vein of panpsychism, there are some really interesting theories out there about consciousness being everywhere, including plants and all physical structures. So there's a recent research that suggests that plants are more than just biological machines that we've always thought just react react to a stimulus. They actually tested anesthetic on certain plants like the Venus flytrap and learned that it seems to go unconscious, like a trait that was never formally associated with plants does this mean that they're conscious? If we give them an anesthetic that works on human consciousness and it works on them and they go dormant for an hour, naturally it isn't the same exact same consciousness as what humans possess, but then what's it like to be a bat? So now what's it like to be a Venus flytrap? It's interesting to think about how many different ways of experiencing life are out there. Because if one thing is certain, it's that there are far more things we don't understand than what we do. So who knows, maybe everything does have consciousness on some level. There are things that would surprise me more than that. Imagine how the world would change if it was discovered for sure that we could measure it on a scale. And what if some beings actually are deeper in some areas of consciousness than us even? That also wouldn't surprise me. We are fairly unconscious a lot in a lot of areas of our lives these days, especially with our poorly named smartphones in our hands. The Shinto religion which is practiced in some form by a lot of Japan, incorporates animism, which is one of the reasons why robotics and anime and toys and figurines are so popular there. Because the Japanese believe that any of these things are incorporated with a spirit or a soul. And maybe they're right. The Japanese have been right about a lot. Perhaps I need to get one of those robot dogs. Is Jonathan's relationship with his father a metaphor. Well, it didn't happen to start out that way, but if you clued into the shift that happened right at the end, you'll probably have noticed that it evolved into one. So Jonathan's story needed a, you know, red alert type of problem that he didn't have time to put aside. So in fiction writing terms, Jonathan's father was born long after Jonathan, but it was a good story choice because it's just something many kids and people, honestly, to face no matter what the severity of the situation. Parents have their expectations, although they usually come from a place of care and good intentions, many times they can't, can be overshadowed by poor execution. Just some refresher context, Professor June articulated John's problem with his father when saying, but what if the issue you're having isn't what you want? but the subtle fear of losing the ground beneath your feet while attempting to attain what you desire. So here John gets angry realizing that Mr. June is alluding to his relationship with his father of being like a safe haven, sort of an entitlement. In other words, his father is his experience machine pulling the strings for him. And the father is the scientist that makes sure that John is nice and comfortable. But now the scientist is deciding to pull the plug on John's experience machine if he won't do exactly what his father tells him to do and forcing him to admit, forcing John to admit that he's actually being controlled here. And he doesn't like the fact that uh, Mr. June calls him out on it. So clearly it's been in the back of Jonathan's head if it bothers him. So this makes me, takes me back to the previous question. So when the hour of reckoning finally comes in the form of his father calling him for an answer. That's when the plug is pulled from Jonathan's experience machine and his whole world starts to collapse and unravel because he needs to face the music. Is it happening, happening metaphorically in the episode or are all the weird moments true and not just in John's head? Well, that I'm going to leave for you to decide. What is Vujade? So a quote from the episode to remind you. It was like he was having déjà vu and Vujade at the same time like he'd already been in this exact situation, but in the moment, he felt like he'd never been here before. It was as if he was swimming in the space between reality and a dream, and he couldn't do anything about it. Kurt Kemp, who's the genius behind this term, described it like this, quote, The experience of Day is usually accompanied by a compelling sense of unfamiliarity and also a sense of shock, awe, and suddenly feeling lost. The experience is most frequently attributed to a lack of imagination, although in some cases there is a firm sense that the experience genuinely never happened. Vujardé has been described as instant Alzheimer's. So the instant Alzheimer's is always what gets me. So the feeling of Vujardé is something you feel never happened, although logically you know it happened. Like let's say you ate vanilla ice cream and felt as if you ate it for the first time ever. Although, if your memory serves you right, you know you did eat a vanilla ice cream before. So the mind remembers, but the body doesn't. So now use that thought on something that's more serious than vanilla ice cream, like life. Would it be good to experience life for the first time once more? To breathe in the air as if it was your first time? To fall in love as if it was your first time? And if you could, what good could come out of that? Would it be another experience machine or something different? How do you know the Sartre quote is wrong? Does it matter or not? So this quote, I'll remind you, is a very popular quote that says from the existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre, which is, the only thing that hasn't been figured out is how to live, or something like that. It's something very close to that. And it's a very popular quote. And just like a lot of popular quotes, who have been attributed to a lot of popular people, he didn't say it. Every time I want to include a quote in future episodes, I'd waste I don't know how many much, how much time trying to make sure, within a reasonable amount of doubt, that it was actually by the person that the internet claimed said it. I'd usually try to make Antonio do it so that I could blame him later, it turned out that once again, no, Einstein did not say XYZ quote. Uh, but then I realized that that was a fail since I do all the full rewrites and I'm to blame again no matter what. Damn you, Joseph Heller and your Catch-22s. I'm always stuck in one. Using quotes with the internet as your source, which let's face it, almost everybody does it these days, I think there's a statistic about misquoting or misattributing of scientific papers, that all sorts of misattributions are done and redone and just recopied because one researcher uses it in his and then it gets recopied into another one. And so let's face it, everybody does it from scientists to, you know, writers of almost everything you find online. So it's a dicey game and you're bound to to get some wrong. So it's guesswork at the end of the day, unless you have literally unlimited time and resources to track down every quote you want to use. And we don't have um, unlimited amount of time. And we don't have time to say, go to the library and check every, uh, every quote to find it in an actual piece of paper book. It's just the reality, but we do our best. And there are a couple good sources. Like one of my favorite is the, the quote investigator. So if anyone gets hung up on something like one of the quotes being wrong, then I would say that you may not be listening for the right reasons, because if you're trying to just be right, that could be a problem. We as humans and we all fall prey to this generally have a collective shortcoming in wanting to be right more than wanting to change ourselves for the better. So I catch myself doing it, too, and I try to correct this silly ego game that we all have to be right so i remember antonio including the quote and pinning Sartre's name to it in one of the earlier drafts because you know he probably was just writing a first draft and didn't really bother and it's a very commonly known (laughs) known quote it's actually a commonly known misquote i believe he said something to the effect of well it just so sounds so sartrean when i when i called him or messaged him and told him i didn't think it was a Sartre quote and But this was one, that, a rare one, that I actually knew was not his quote because I had looked at titling an article or a podcast or something with the words something to the effect of, you know, we don't know how to live. And I was going to use this as one of the foundational quotes in the article. And so I'd looked into it, into it previously and was pissed to find out, like a lot of quotes that you find, that it was not a start quote. I made him dug in dig into it, and we learned that I think it was written by if I'm remembering correctly, a female fan of his or something, and she was trying to make a point about his viewpoint. so it wasn't it wasn't maliciously done or anything because it is very much like his philosophy. And it got published somewhere that that story could be wrong, but it's something along those check check the quote investigator. He knows not me. And you can blame him if it's not right. Um, But Antonio Antonio is right. It is very Sartrean in its message, but not in the actual words. So I guess I don't know why people do this. You know, sometimes the exact phrasing of something isn't found. I mean, some people, I think, do it maliciously, but some people are just looking for something that fits exactly the narrative they're after. And they take someone who would say something just like this and they attribute something to him. You know, it happens all the time with lots of people like Einstein and Thomas Edison and, and so forth. Now, does it matter or not if it's truly starts quote? I mean, yes and no. When it comes to words of wisdom like this, it's ultimately not necessarily about who said it, but does the listener take it in and do something about it? Will he or she take it as nothing more than something to repost onto Twitter or Facebook? Or will they look at it as a tool can use in their real life to rethink their mindset so when you look at it like this it doesn't really matter who wrote the quote but it does matter in a way if that person isn't interested in finding out but it might be a sign of you know lack of wanting to know more and wanting to know more is the best weapon for finding out what you're supposed to do which is of course the question of this episode whether it was sartre or a completely anonymous person who said it or one of his fans or whatever it doesn't matter in some ways as long as we take the words as long as we learn from what the words are saying what happens to john at the end so i believe in the previous btp behind the podcast of this of the same episode i hinted on why this is why this something happened to john and how it was influenced by nozick's experience machine So since I needed something to break that, what would otherwise be just kind of a classical drama story, it had to get a little weird. So you clearly noticed at the point at which John returns home, everything somewhat changes. The music becomes a bit darker, and what was just a normal conversation all of a sudden spins out of control, and his father calling is one of the reasons for it starting to unwire. So as for what exactly happened to John, oh, that's a shame. I'm out of time for this question. (laughs) What if I'm stuck in someone else's experience machine being controlled? Should I take the red pill? And is the matrix really unoriginal as you stated in the episode? So I'll give a quote here from the episode. Are you saying that the fact that we suffer is actually proof that we right now aren't in a matrix-like simulation. So, if you're one of the handful who didn't see the Matrix, which actually Heidi is one of those those handful, the story is it, it's it's a cool story. We 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 tease it a little bit in the in the episode, but that's not because we don't like or respect it. It has a lot of all kinds of historical references and biblical references and philosophical deep. There's a whole book called something like you know, made the matrix and philosophy. And it's a modern day high-tech interpretation of this old question of knowledge versus belief. And it goes, you know, you know, allegory of the cave is a similar situation where the subject sitting there who's seeing shadows on the wall is being told that what he's seeing through the fire flickering firelight the shadows of, of things being presented to him is reality and yet if he gets out of the chair and leaves the cave he realizes that what he thought his whole life was reality is not reality and that's basically what the matrix is it's the same it's the exact same concept it's just a high-tech interpretation and when neo um, keanu reeves character realizes for the first time that he's been living in this facade of reality the whole time and it's not actually reality. You know, I'm sure he has some some Keanu Reeves moment where he says something like, Whoa. Um but it's a, you know, so the so the, the the what this question is asking then is, you know, should I take the red pill? Lawrence Fishburne is the is the kind of, you know, oracle-like character in the movie. And when Neo realizes, Keanu Reeves realizes that he is he's been living this lie Morpheus says to him and offers him an option. You take the blue pill the story ends you wake up in your bed and you believe whatever you want to believe. Or you take the red pill and we basically see how deep the rabbit hole goes type of thing. If you take the blue pill you go back to living in ignorance's bliss and that's that. If you take the red pill and you want to know the truth then you have to live knowing what the truth is. This question is kind of asking, should I take the red pill? Like, do I want to live knowing the truth? It all comes down to what you want. Do you want to wallow in ignorance or face the music? There isn't a wrong choice. Of course, it's easier said than done. And so, of course, this is the same concept, really, as Nozick's experience machine, which is the main thought experiment behind this episode. You know, do you want to be plugged into this thing where you like in advance say like, I would love to be a famous actor and be amazing at guitar and be a genius. And if you could just say all those things and the the experience machine would do all that for you, is that enough? You know, because you would be living kind of ignorant of the fact that, that you had programmed yourself to do that in this machine. And most people, find this uncomfortable because they want to actually experience which means people want the potential suffering of not getting those things nozick's paper goes on to argue that most people would not want to plug in you know that's exactly why we need to decide for ourselves what we want so what's fascinating is how powerful this this uh, it's an age-old metaphor but it's very much made present and, and prevalent again by the Matrix, it's very powerful pop culture metaphor that has sunk in with people. Talk about integrating some old school philosophy into a delicious pop culture candy that's been consumed by, I don't know, half the globe. You know, half the globe except Heidi. Um, but um, of course, it's 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 uh, who knows how many. It's you know, the, with all the bootleg copies and, and of DVDs and in Asia, it's hard to say how many of the how many people have actually watched it, but I know the numbers are are huge. It's one of the the biggest blockbusters of all time. There's even this ugly Reddit subculture that's popped up called something like the Red Pill Society or the Red Pill Group or something like that. And it's basically a group of misogynists claiming that they represent the real world, in other words, the red pill takers, of how men are having a hard time being properly represented in today's world. And so basically, it's just become this forum for women women bashing. It's a joke, but un- unfortunately not. So it just goes to show that this metaphor is that powerful. That's even being you know used for all sorts of negative metaphorical interpretations. But I mean, this is an old, deep, philosophical, spiritual question. I mean, at least as old as the Bible. To me, you don't need any proof that the religious versus non-religious worldview can. Never coexist, probably because they're just—they'll never have an intellectual middle ground on this core issue. I mean, this is it from the very start. It's established that these are fundamentally opposing worldviews. The red-blue pill concept is nearly identical. The choice given in the Garden of Eden, which is eat from the tree of belief, and you forego wisdom in exchange for living forever. In ignorance, but living forever eternally in heaven. Or pick your fruit from the tree of knowledge and you gain wisdom of all things good and evil. But you do so by being banished forever from Eden and therefore unable to live forever in blissful ignorance. And it's right there in Genesis 3:5, Quote, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. And of course, that's eating from the tree of knowledge. One side seeks knowledge and does so giving up eternal life, and the other side chooses to believe and banishes those who seek it. And then for the next couple millennia, everyone takes sides on this issue and kills one another. So there you go. I just wrote the entire history of Western civilization for you, referenced using only one Bible passage and one pop culture source. Copyright Evolve Faster 2019. (laughs) I mean, can't we just all get along and watch The Matrix together? Well, on that story of brotherly love, this brings us to the end of the AMA for episode EF3. I apologize to any questions I was unable to get to. I tried to cover the ones that I felt covered the uh, the breadth of what most of the questions were. So you can always submit questions to evolvefaster.com Forward slash discuss, and we will look forward to seeing you in the next episode, which will be a behind the podcast for episode EF4. Take care, see you soon. The Evolve Faster podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co written with the help of Antonio Rosic. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality, original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content, to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster.